Hey friends, this morning uh, we have the great privilege in hearing one of the most awesome passages in the entire Bible that speaks of the love in God's heart that we just sang about. Um, it comes from Luke chapter 15, and it involves a story that Jesus told, um, I believe quite likely at a dinner party. So if you can imagine this scene about 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem, um, probably it was a night this time of year, because Luke chapter 15 happens just a little bit before Holy Week. Um, and maybe it was a little chilly in Jerusalem that night. I imagine that like we're in an outdoor courtyard, there's a large fire, um, maybe there's a little food that's exchanged. And at this particular evening dinner party gathering, um, it is mixed company, meaning there are, well, religious people and not religious people. There are the good people, and there are, uh, you know, like regular people. Uh, here's how Luke 15 begins. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Do those sound like the good people? No. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And on this occasion, Jesus told them a parable. So can you picture this scene? Mixed company, everyone gathered around the fire. Who do you think the closest people to the fire and Jesus would have been? The good people or the bad people? No, the good people, like the religious pro professionals. I'm going to play all my cards here. Like, I am one of the good people in this situation. Okay, like the paid religious professionals. It's not going to come out well for the people like me, by the way, in, the, in these stories. The bad people are also there. And miraculously, Jesus has the kind of personality and his life is arranged in such a way that everybody feels welcome, and is able to gather at the same dinner party. But again, it's the nice people who are probably in the closest circle and probably out at the edges where the warmth of the fire is hardly touching are the, you know, the tax collectors and the prodigious sinners. And Jesus' solution, not solution, Jesus' way of coping on this evening is to tell stories. Maybe, maybe to put everybody on common ground, maybe to bring everybody together. And a fine question at the outset of this message that Pastor Jeff and I are going to share is, which of those two groups of people do you find yourself relating to this morning? Are you one of the good people? Would you be one of the ones who's closest to Jesus because everybody knows what a great suburban knight you are? Or because you're a paid Christian? or a paid follower, or would you be one of the people who are like, yeah, people know some stuff about where I've been, about my history, some of the stuff that I've done. Would you be more on the outskirts of this situation? Another way of describing these two groups of people is this. One group of people knows that they need Jesus. Which group do you think that is? Not the good people. The other group of people is sitting there kind of looking down the end of their noses, people who are there to judge the work of Jesus. Do we approve of this rabbi? 
Does he have something to offer to people like us? I mean, I've been on the inside of this religious stuff for a very long time. Do you relate more to one of those two groups? The people who need the work of Jesus or the people who maybe are in the habit of judging the work of Jesus? In this mixed company, maybe initially to ease the tension, but ultimately he's going to ratchet up the tension, Jesus tells three stories. The first one about a lost sheep, the second one about a lost coin, and the third one about what sometimes we call a lost son. I would say lost sons. Sometimes of all of Jesus' parables or stories, this is the most famous one. Sometimes it's called the story of the prodigal son. I would say for our purposes this morning, we'll call it the parable of the prodigal family. Because what you're going to hear is that the father is a prodigal. What does that even mean, a prodigal? One son, the younger son, is totally a prodigal. And the older son, also a prodigal. Here's how I would suggest we define prodigal today. Something is prodigal if it is recklessly extravagant or extravagantly wasteful. And you could put a positive or negative spin on this. Like, if you don't have much money and you use what, what small amount of money you have to make a small down payment, like on a Porsche, that would be a prodigal car purchase. Extravagantly wasteful, especially with fuel prices being what they are. You hear me? Okay. On the positive side, though, perhaps at some point you have been loved, cared for, appreciated in a way that you do not deserve. Like I would say my wife, Sarah, loves me with a prodigal love. Like she has wasted 30 years of her life. <laughs> like being, being my wife. Right? So there is also that kind of like blind, I can't help it. I'm just going to lo- like share in my affection and my love. So each of the characters in the story is prodigal, though maybe in a different way. Pastor Jeff is going to lead us uh, in the father and the younger son. Then I'm going to be back to talk about the big brother. I'd buy a Tesla. All right. <clears throat> So, the story begins like this. Check it out on the screen. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, this story begins with a total shocker. Like this would be a shocker for a Jewish audience. Here's a kid, a brash, young, prideful kid, asking for his inheritance now before his father dies. He's basically saying to his dad, basically, dad, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. I just want my money. I want what's coming to me. And, and crazily, the father says, okay. And he divides his wealth between the two sons. Jesus continues the story. A few days later, this younger son packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. I'm out of here, dad. See ya. Now, right out of the gate, I think this story gets us thinking about the character of God. He's pointing, Jesus is pointing something out about God our Father. God will let you go your own way if you want to. He'll let you go. He'll give you over to your desires. 
he'll say, fine, you want to go, you can go. This is how it's been since the world began. It's why God put the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden. He didn't want robots. He didn't want people following him because it was their obligation in this perfect little thing. He wanted to give them a choice. He really wanted to be loved by people, right? Not, not follow out of obligation. So he gives Adam and Eve a choice. He wants them to be able to choose. Am I going to love God and follow him? Or am I going to go my own way? It's your decision. And God will let you go your own way. I mean, we all get this, right? Nobody wants to have people around them. I mean, Greg doesn't want Sarah to be his wife for these miserable 30 years for Sarah if Sarah's only in it because she has to be there. Right? She's just stuck in this marriage. No, he wants Sarah to love him. Right? If, if I want my wife to love me, to want to be with me, to want to be identified with me, to want to be connected to me. Same thing with kids. You don't want your kids to hang around because, you know, even though they're just stuck in this house and they have to be there, you want your kids to love you, to be, want to be connected to you, right? So this is God's heart. And out of the gate, Jesus gives us this picture of a father who says, fine, you want to go your own way? Here's your stuff. Go. Pursue the life that you want to have. Philip Yancey is an author. He was on a retreat, spiritual retreat, reading his Bible, and he writes this about his thoughts about God. After two weeks of studying the Bible, I had a strong sense that God doesn't care so much about being analyzed. Mainly, he wants to be loved. Nearly every page of his word rustles with this message. And I returned home knowing I must somehow explore the relationship between a passionate God, hungry for the love of his people, and the people themselves. So the Father, God our Father, he grants us our request. Want to go our own way? Want to live in a far country? Have at it. Go for it. Now, the question is, what motivates this prodigal kid to want to do this? Ever thought about that? I mean, he wants something else, obviously. He doesn't like what he's been handed. He doesn't like how he's grown up. He's not satisfied. He wants to make his own decisions, go his own way, get out of this tired, boring life that he's been handed in his village where he lives. What exactly was this way of life the son was running away from? Well, um, the son in the story grew up in the Jewish triangle. I'm going to put this on the screen, a map here. I think I am. There it is. See the triangle? I, I made a really bad triangle, but there's three cities, Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida. 75 to 80% of the Gospels happen in that triangle. So when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, 75 or 80% of the story is happening there. The Jewish triangle was set up by the Pharisees who wanted to escape the terrible influence of Greek Hellenism that had come to Palestine. So they moved to the triangle, they set up a simple way of life, focused on making everything literally follow the word of God, God's way of life, right? Now, Hellenism is kind of a dangerous philosophy. Alexander the Great brought it to, to Palestine. Basically, Alexander said, if, if I can take over education, health care, entertainment, and athletics, I will control the world. So in a Hellenistic culture, the rock star, the athlete, the actress, and the philosophers were the ones that people looked up to. They were the heroes. Life in Hellenism was all about getting your own way, having it your way, pursuing your leisure. People in Hellenism said things like, it's great when you have a whole day just to yourself. Hellenism was all about how you looked. If you looked really good, you were high on a pedestal. If you didn't look so good, 
you weren't so respected. Does this sound familiar at all to you? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, we, we have these commercials on TV all the time. Have it your way. Or the most interesting man in the world who smokes Cuban cigars and has women all around him. Or I want to be like Mike. Right? Hellenism. So these villages in the Jewish triangle, they said, we don't want to grow up this way. They raised their kids differently. They raised their kids to follow the word of God, to be in uh, God's word, take it literally, to live distinctively from this. The rabbis call Hellenism a time-killing pursuit of pleasure. The son grows up in this village. He wants out. Where does he want to go? You see that town Hippos there? So you can see the son's living in the Jewish triangle, but he can see... He knows where Hippos is. He's heard all the stories of all the terrible things that go on over there. Hippos is one of the ten cities of Alexander the Great that were built on that eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. There's ten cities there. They were all destroyed in an earthquake in 12 seconds, just after the time of Jesus and never were rebuilt. But those cities are spectacular. The ruins of those cities are spectacular, and that's where Hellenism was being lived out. That's where the sun wanted to go, to the far country, he wanted to get out of his village, all this conservative word of God stuff, this pharisaical way of life. He wanted to sow his oats, you know, live his life. He wanted some leisure, some pleasure. He wanted to do it his way. So he asked for his money. He says, Father, your way of life, your way of doing things, the way this village does things, that's all dead to me. I want to live my life as if there's no father, no rules, no authority. I want to do it my way. And the father says, okay, you can go. Now, if you're a parent, you know that this is deeply ingrained in the human spirit, right? I remember my son Ben as a little kid when he was being told one day that he was not going to do what he wanted to do. I remember him announcing out loud, I cannot wait to grow up where I get to make all my own rules in a super loud voice. This is the same kid that two hours later, when left in the driveway by himself, drove his bike into an oncoming car and almost got, you know, run over. But hey, it was good. We let him do his own thing. <laughs> so the story continues. Here it goes. Jesus keeps talking. There in the far country, he wasted all his money in wild living. About this time, his money ran out. A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. So this going his own way is working out pretty well for this guy. What do you think? He's, he's, taken, he's wasted all of his money on going crazy in these towns. He's squandered it all, and he's starving to death, and he ends up working in a pretty ironic place with a bunch of pigs. As a Jewish young man, he was taught pigs were not to be touched not to be eaten, no one should be around them, and this is where he ends up, in a pigsty. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a pig barn. I've been in a pig barn. I think I talked about this a couple years ago when I was uh, talking about this same parable, but when I went to Minnesota one time to speak, a pig farmer took me into his pig barn. I had to take all my clothes off going in and take a shower, put on different clothes, because he said the smell would be so bad that anything I had in my body, would, it would, anything, any kind of cloth or even my glasses, the stink would, would actually stick to it, and I would not be able to get it off. So he said, put on this special clothes. We went into this pig barn, pigs everywhere, 
disgusting food in the mud, rolling in the mud. The smell was so bad, your eyes watered. I'm serious. It was terrible. On the way out, we had to take another shower, take off all this stinky clothes, put our other clothes back on, and go back to our lives. This is where this kid ends up. He's taking care of pigs, rolling the pig barn, and he longs to eat the food that the pigs are eating. Ever made this kind of decision? Going your own way? Can you think of a time in your life when you were going your own way and it just didn't work out so well? Ever been in a pigsty? I was thinking about it. I think I've been in a few pigsties in my life. I won't get specific, but I've definitely been here. I've definitely pursued my own path and ended up in the pigsty. So Jesus continues the story. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home even the hired servants have food enough to spare. Here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. When he came to his senses, I love that line. What makes people come to their senses? Well, when you're rolling around in pig mud, eating pig food, that'll help you come to your senses, don't you think? Yeah. In fact, Alcoholics Anonymous talks about that people won't come to their senses until they hit rock bottom. But most people, most fathers, are not willing to let their kids hit rock bottom. It's dangerous, right? So we usually usually catch them before they hit rock bottom, and we kind of take away some of the consequences and make life a little easier so as to not have them go through the danger of that. But then did they ever really come to their senses? This prodigal father, he's willing to let you go your own way. He's willing to let you come to your senses. He's willing to let you wallow in the pig trough until you come to your senses. That's crazy. A God who says, fine, you want to go your own way? Roman says he will give you over to whatever you want to pursue. You can go for it. And then, hopefully, you'll come to your senses. This kind of father waits he hopes, he lurks, he, he, he stops, but he doesn't intervene. doesn't bail you out. So the story continues. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now is found. So the party began. I really don't know if we understand the scandalous love that is going on here. I mean, some of us have grown up in church so long, we've forgotten the pigsties we've been in. Or maybe we've never really been in a really deep pigsty. But this is scandalous love. This is a kid who said to his father, you're dead to me. I want to live as if there's no father, no authority. I want to do it my own way. And now he comes back home and the father runs to meet him and embraces him and kisses him and throws a party in his honor. Man, sin in the ancient world is not a breaking of a bunch of commandments. 
It's the breaking of a relationship. It's the committing of adultery. It's like totally turning your back on the person that you love. It makes this story crazy. Philip Yancey continues his reflections. He says like this, As I read through the Bible, I marveled at how much God lets human beings affect him. I was unprepared for the joy and anguish, in short, the passion of the God of the universe. By studying about God, by taming him and reducing him to words and concepts about, that could be filed away in alphabetical order, I had lost the force of the passionate relationship God seeks above all else. I mean, he seeks it. He's willing to get egg on his face for it. He's willing to be, have his reputation damaged. It's radical stuff. And Jesus puts this on display through his life over and over again. Hanging out with prostitutes, touching lepers, hanging out with sinners. Yeah, this isn't just a story. This is how Jesus lived, radically. It makes you actually ask some tougher questions. Who does God love the most? The murderer or the murdered? The pornography stars or those who look at the pornography? The guy who ties every week or the person who's sporadic at best in their giving? The person who faithfully attends church week in and week out or the person who never really darkens the door of a church? The person who's having an affair and can't find his or her way out or the person that's faithfully committed to their spouse and their vows? The guy who cusses a blue streak or the person who praises Jesus with every other word? The good kid who follows the rules or the kid who struggles to follow the rules and pushes the edges? The sexually active teen or the sexually abstinent teen? I mean, who does God love the most? Who's he going to waste his radical love on? How prodigal will he be? How crazy is it? You know how you understand the answer to those questions? It says a lot about how you understand the God that you worship, that you follow, the Jesus that you've given your life to. You know, I was thinking about this this week. If you're working IT, like poor Kyle Olson, you know, we call him all the time and say, hey, Kyle, my computer, I don't know what's wrong. Usually the answer is push the reset button, Klein, try to reset the computer, then call me back. And sure enough, if I push the reset button, if I restart the computer, it goes back to default mode. Wouldn't it be awesome if we could push the reset button on all of us? We would go back to default mode, the mode that God made us for in the beginning? Wouldn't it be cool if humans could do that? But it doesn't work that way. No, the only default mode, the only way to get back to default mode, the only get, way to reset things is to come to your senses and run back home to your father. It's the only way to reset your system. Come to your senses and run back home to the father. And the radical, prodigal father will meet you on the road and embrace you and welcome you home. So if you were at this dinner party in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and if you're one of the outsiders, how are you feeling at this point in Jesus' story? Hopefully pretty good, because Jesus is opening a window about the incredible prodigal nature 
of God's love. But if you're one of the insiders, one of the people like me, how are you feeling at this point in Jesus' story? I'm kind of thinking, like, what is he going to talk about me? Like the good people. Here's the next line in Jesus' story. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Well, it's about time, Jesus. Like, bring the, bring the interesting, the good people into the story. Excellent. When he came near the house, he heard the music and the dancing. So the older brother called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Well, your brother has come, the servant replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf. That's old school Bible language for thrown the mother of all parties. Because the father has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So Houston, we now have a problem. The prodigal nature of the father's love is revealed and the older brother is not having it. He's angry about the scene that is going down on the family farm. Here's a painting I found this week from a guy named James Jenknecht, kind of painted in Southwest Mexican-American style. Um, I could say a lot of things about this painting. Notice at the top there's airplanes going away from the father. It's so easy to get away. Just hop on a plane, you're gone. Getting home at the bottom, much more difficult. Bus stop, a bus, cars, cars, Uber, hitchhike, foot, barefoot. Finally, you get back home. Like, that's true. Notice the older brother on the right hand. I love this. He's got a guitar, and he's snapping the guitar neck because he's so angry. Notice what's at his feet. The skull of a Texas longhorn. That is so perfect. Because his attitude, well, you see how his attitude is going to end. In a church like ours, it's nearly 100 years old, this congregation. Um, we are full of older brothers and older sisters. I'd make the case that we have a much greater temptation, kind of community-wide, to fall into the guitar snapping, frustrated with how... Ugh, prodigal the heart of the father is, then that we're all going to hop on a plane and start wasting our lives on pleasurable spring breaks. Extended pleasurable spring breaks. Will the father have enough love for the older brother too? Like, that's a great question. Like we know the father's heart is willing to let back in this younger child who has wasted so much. But is there the same open embrace and love for this older child who doesn't get the prodigal nature of the father's heart yet? Here's how Jesus' story ends. So the father went out and pleaded with the older son. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you, never disobeyed your orders, Dad, and you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him? Do you hear how full of resentment this man's words are? Resentment meaning to feel things over and over again and feel worse every time you call them into your memory. He's been thinking about this for years, that he's never got a party, 
that he's never been spoiled to have fun with his friends, and he has been slaving away in the family business. He has accusations for the father. You never. Dad, you never even gave me a little party. Comparison and competition are absolute killers for family and for love relationships, right? I have a number of siblings. I've fallen into this pit a million times. If you find yourself comparing yourself to your uncle, your aunt, your coworker, your brother, your sister, in the eyes of someone who loves you, like that is a path to darkness and destruction. Many of you are smiling right now. <laughs> this is a well-worn path. Is it worse wasting money or worse, wasting the affection of someone who loves you and the people all around you. I mean, money you can replace. But if you are actively squandering love and affection just so that you can work up a little bit of resentment over your discontent with how the competition is going with your brothers and sisters, whew, like that's a tougher thing to get over. Here's how the father in the story handles it. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Do you hear any resentment, any bitterness in the father's words and the prodigal love of this father's heart? Nope. But we had to celebrate. We had to be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. This is where God's heart is. This is what Jesus is saying to this dinner party 2,000 years ago and what he is saying to the church today. This is where the real action is. This is where the mission of God is. This is where the prodigal heart of the Father is. This is the whole point of Jesus' journey to the cross. It's the whole point of an annual observation of Lent, the 40 days in the church, that we remember that the heart of God is about bringing all of us from death, through death, to life. That God's heart is all about bringing all of us from our lostness and ignorance and competition and resentment to being loved and found to being comforted and healed and made whole and secure in the Father's love and in the family here. Uh, if you are a long-timer here, speaking to people like me now, if you are a long-timer here, it is not your goodness that God is needing. God doesn't need it. It is your continued growth. It is your ongoing conversion. It is your repentance. Even if you've been walking with the Lord for 70 years, it is your moving closer to the Father heart of God that brings joy to the heart of God, the prodigal, recklessly extravagant heart of God. This is the end of the story in Luke 15, by the way you'll notice that we do not get a resolution in Luke 15 of how the people reacted. 
How do you think the Pharisees and teachers of the law reacted to that dinner party 2,000 years ago? Do you think they basked in the warmth of Jesus' wisdom and winsomeness and love and the scope of the Father's heart that Jesus uh, described and told so beautifully to them? Do you think people got it? I would say not because they crucified him just a few weeks later. I mean, the very man who in their presence tried to bring them all into the embrace of the Lord, the people at that dinner party would not have it. And rather than accept the wideness of God's love, they killed the Son of God instead. I say this humbly as one of the people trying to be a good person, as one of the professional followers of Jesus. Like you read the story and it makes me, it makes me tremble. But what was true of those people 2,000 years ago is still true of me and you today if you're like this older brother the prodigal, reckless love of God is still available even for people like me, even for a church that's been around for 100 years. If it's your first time today or if you've been to 8,000 church services before, the point is not who's better or worse, the younger brother or older brother. The point is we are God's children together and no matter what our history, no matter what our faults and failures, no matter what we're up to today, we need the love, the grace, the prodigal nature, the prodigal heart of God, the light of God to shine on us the exact same way. It doesn't matter better or worse in the family. We're not having a moral competition. We're not having a spiritual history competition. We just need Jesus. Like, that's what this is about. And every time, whether you've been doing it for decades or not, every time you get down or like, God, I need more of you. Every time you get in that position, it gives God joy. And that is a prayer that he will answer each and every time. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, or where you're coming from. What matters is just the longing for more of it and recognizing it only comes from God, from his grace, through Jesus. It's not something that you're going to earn. It's not something that you're going to deserve. It's not something you're going to outcompete the person sitting next to you so you can get a little bit more of it. All the texts of Scripture that uh, are on your worship folder today from Psalm 32 to this one have exactly to do with this. With God, it's undeserved grace all the way through. And here's last text from 2 Corinthians 5. Here's what the Lord is after. If anyone is in Christ, if you're willing to hear Jesus' stories, if you're willing to receive the work of Christ, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Something new. The old, it's gone. The new, and it's here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is reconciliation? It's what this world needs. It's mending things that have been ripped apart. And in Jesus, 
that is God's whole project. Reconciling you personally, reconciling this world, reconciling the nations of the world, reconciling the brokenness of the entire material universe, and mending it back together to be the good creation that God intended it to be all, the, all along. And notice that we are not passive here, but if you've experienced even a taste of Jesus' goodness, the whole point is not just having it, but receiving it and then passing it on. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then did what? Gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It's more of an honor, more of a privilege, more of a gift than, than we deserve. And it's why when we bicker, when we compete, when we lose sight of the global project that God is up to, to, be, to reconcile things to himself, when we're willing to flush that down the drain just so that we can have more of the little stuff that we want, oof. God, please for me, more of your prodigal heart. God, for our community, more of your prodigal heart. God, for this world that keeps up coming with coming up with dumb ways to break things rather than surrender to the mending that you would do. God, more of your prodigal love. Amen? Amen. Uh, about four or five years ago, um, the church started in North America started a singing a song called Reckless Love. And before we ever sang it here, um, I heard from several friends like, hey, there's this awesome new song, but um, my church won't sing it because it seems inappropriate to call God's love reckless. Uh, <laughs> it is reckless. So it depends how you define reckless, right? If reckless means like random or just willy-nilly, like, of, of course, that's not the love of God. But if reckless means prodigal, extravagantly wasteful, out of proportion compared to what we deserve, then that love is reckless. Amen? So with that in mind, I invite you to stand and sing wholeheartedly. <laughs> 